All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship as we study the Bible together. So if you'd open up your Bible to the book of Malachi. All right, so Malachi 3, last messages I've had the privilege of addressing from Malachi have been on nominalism, divorce, and today the super popular topic of tithing. So I'm just out here making friends, me and Malachi all day long. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Let's dive in together. Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tithe or tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. So the name Sam Houston means a lot to our friends from Texas and we've got a Texan in our household. Our, our oldest son Hunter was born in Longview, Texas when we were there for a couple of years. Um, I read an article this weekend on history.com about Sam Houston entitled Seven Things You May Not Know About Sam Houston. Now, I didn't really know anything about Sam Houston except, I'm guessing, Houston uh, has some kind of connection to Sam Houston. So everything I read there was surprising to me, but here are a few of the high points of the article. Number one, he attacked a congressman with a cane on Pennsylvania Avenue. Didn't, Didn't really see that that coming. Second, only American elected governor who, was, who served in two different states. Third, he became a member of the Cherokee Nation and they named him Raven. Uh, again, just all this stuff was really surprising. One of the things that the history.com article didn't bring up, which is one of the only things I knew about Sam Houston, was the legendary story of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. That part I did know wasn't mentioned in the article, but he decided to follow Jesus and his baptism event became the stuff of legend. People told the story of what happened when Sam Houston was baptized. Much to the amazement of everyone around him, nobody really saw him as a person who would decide to follow Jesus. Apparently he did. And after his baptism, Houston said he wanted to pay half the local minister's salary. And when someone asked him why, He said, my pocketbook was baptized too. If Israel's pocketbook had been baptized, we wouldn't be reading these words in Malachi chapter three. It's it's because there was a disconnect between their going down and coming up and, and the disconnect there with their finances, their stewardship, and the way they spent their money. That's why we have this text. So if you're taking notes, we can see three movements in this passage. Number one, withholding. 
withholding. So you look down in your Bible, verse seven. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. So this is a very old problem. This isn't a new situation in Malachi's time. He's saying this is an age-old problem of you turning away from God's statutes. Malachi is written and structured around, and we've used this term multiple times as we've been teaching through this book, structured around something called disputations. So God has a dispute. He has a case to make, and he's prosecuting that case. And so in each of these disputations, anybody remember how many there are? Six. In each of these six disputations, God says, I have a problem. And here's the problem. And he, he lays out this accusation. Then the people say, they try to duck and dodge the accusation. Then God says, exhibit A, exhibit B. He backs him into a corner. He says, oh no, it's, it's in you. This is what's going on in your lives and among you. And then there's implications. In each one of the disputations, implications of what it would look like to follow me faithfully in light of this issue. So here's the problem. Judah is spiritually sick. Judah is spiritually sick, and Malachi is God's doctor, doctor's in, and he diagnoses the issue, and it's this, chronic unfaithfulness. Again, the language, since, verse seven, since the days of your fathers you've turned from my statue. Chronic unfaithfulness. And really, that is the issue underneath all the disputations, all the issues that are brought up in the book of Malachi, the fundamental problem is chronic unfaithfulness. But in each of these disputations, and we've been through four of them, we're on the fifth one now, God raises this kind of presenting symptom and he addresses this specific entailment of your unfaithfulness. So, and we've named the sermons by those problems, doubting God's love, shoddy sacrifices, breaking faith, and then last Sunday, doubting God's justice, and now holding back, right? So the symptom that's in view here in our passage this morning is the withholding of tithes and offerings. The withholding of tithes and offerings. Look again at verse eight. God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth. That's the same word for tithe and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tithe, bring the full tenth into the storehouse. Now, if you don't grow up in, um, in church world, right, in, in, in a Christian family, you might live your whole life and never hear the word tithe. It's not like, you know, there's a lot of uh, cultural currency in that term, the tithe. But I grew up in a pastor's house and we learned tithe real fast, right? It was kind of like our discipleship program was mom and dad told us John 3.16, then Malachi 3.10. He's like, God loved the world and sent Jesus, bring the tithes into the storehouse. And God loves a cheerful giver, right? So that was kind of, we learn in these verses, it's really important, right? So if you're not familiar with the concept of tithe, this is in your notes, Tithes and offerings, here's the big idea, a minimum expectation of 10% of one's income being paid in support of the public worship of God and ministry to God's people. So that's a mouthful, but it's so that you can take it home. That's what tithing and offerings were all about. The tithe was used in three primary ways in the Old Testament. So I'm gonna read a lot of passages outside our text. We normally just live in one text for the whole time. That's kind of our, our normal bread and butter approach. But 
the tithe isn't explained. The tithe is expected in our text, but it's not explained. So we've got to go elsewhere to see what the rest of the Bible says so we understand what the tithe was about. All right, so I'm going to put some scriptures up on the screen, and we're going to see three ways that tithes were used. First is it supported the full-time ministry of priests and Levites. Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. Look, God says, I have given the Levites every tenth in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work they do, the work of the tent of meeting, the work they do at the tabernacle, right? So it supported full-time ministry of Levites and priests. Second, the tithe was given to provide relief for the poor among them in Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 14. At the end of every three years, bring a tithe, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year, and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. So how many of you grew up in church where they had a food pantry? All right, so this, the tithe, was a food pantry. Part of the purpose of it was everybody, every year, because we're all raising crops, right? A very agricultural environment. Bring one-tenth of all your grain, one-tenth of all the stuff that you grow. Bring it here. Let's put it in the pantry because there are gonna be people among us who fall on hard times and they're gonna be able to walk in here and get food so nobody starves in our big, wide family. So it provided relief for the poor. Third, it set the table for the greatest potluck feast in world history. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 26. Each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. You are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. But if the distance is too great for you to carry it, so pause for just a second. A lot of these people have been flung. They were living far from the city of Jerusalem where God made his presence to dwell. And so they're coming from all these places, maybe hundreds of miles away. They're coming from all these distant lands. And so he's providing, accommodating that situation. He says, if the distance is too great for you to carry all that stuff, this distance, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver in your own hometown Take the silver in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. There's Jerusalem. You may spend the silver on anything you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. Isn't that a sweet twist on what tithing did? It was God's way of saying, bring all this stuff, all this food, all this grain, warm bread, savory meats, and eat it together in my presence in Jerusalem. Big family reunion, grills smoking as far as the eye can see, and chow down. Enjoy my abundant goodness when you come together in Jerusalem. So they're bringing three, um, three purposes. They're bringing 10% of their annual earnings, and God said, now that you've brought the earnings, wonderful. Have a big meal. Now that you've brought your earnings, Wonderful, the poor can be provided for. Nobody's gonna starve this year. Now that you've brought your offerings, the Levites can be freed up to keep teaching and instructing and leading worship. And look, this big event, this big meal, this is not, you know, finger sandwiches and tap water. 
Yeah, this, is, um, this is rack of lamb. This is warm bread for days. This is 10% of the produce of the vineyard. So the wine is flowing all week long. We're in Malachi 3, right? It's, Christians can get funny when it comes to talking about Malachi 3, when it comes to talking about tithing, offerings, that, that kind of thing. Some can be so quick to say, that's Old Testament, almost with a sense of relief. You know, that's, okay, they, you know, that's the Old Testament. That's how, that's how they rolled in the Old Testament, the 10% thing. Jesus doesn't really bring it up, except when he's talking about the Pharisees, tithing mint, cumin, and dill, and not giving themselves to the weightier matters of the law, so forth, right? So we, we have this way of kind of quickly dismissing tithing as an Old Testament deal. John Piper, I can't improve on this. He talks about the weird logic of Christians on this side of the cross uh, being allergic to the concept of tithing and giving. Here's what he says. It goes something like this. The logic goes something like this. We live in the New Testament. We've seen the love of God for us at Calvary. We've seen the power of God for us on Easter morning. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit of grace and sonship. We are secure and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Therefore, we may be content to give less than Old Testament saints. It's like saying, there's no law that says I have to spend an hour playing with my sons in the evening. So to magnify my freedom as a father, I will play with them for five minutes on Tuesday or Thursday if I feel like it because I'm free. I've never understood that logic. I don't think God understands it. We get, we get testy when the word talks to us about giving. So think about history with me for a moment, just to get a sense of where Malachi is in the flow of Old Testament history. But think about where we are. So many of you, probably in the room, many of you know someone who knew someone who was alive during the Civil War. Just think about that for a second. Many of you here in the room know someone who knew someone that was alive during the Civil War. My grandpa Harold, for example, was born in the early 1900s before 1910, I don't remember which year. That's my dad's dad. So his grandpa would have been born when, right? His grandparents would have been born in the 1850s or 1860s. So I know people who knew people who were alive during the Civil War. Malachi's audience, they knew people who knew people who watched Babylon come into town sack the place and set the temple on fire so that it became a charred ruins. That was 140 years earlier. You know people who knew people who saw that whole thing roll in. When, when the buses rolled in, picked up the people and carried them off to Babylon, you got people in your life who are connected to people who saw that happen. And the thing that makes Malachi so testy in this book is it's like Malachi's saying, why was the temple destroyed? Why was the temple destroyed? It was destroyed because for centuries we traded God-honoring worship for religious convenience. And here we go doing it again. You know people who knew people who watched our city fall and we're doing the same things that made Jerusalem fall in the first place. You cut that 140 years in half, 70 years ago, Malachi could have said this, 70 years ago, your grandparents saw the newly constructed Temple of Solomon, the second one, the one that was built after Cyrus let us come back home. 
They saw the ribbon cutting event in 516 BC. And what should have happened, what should have happened is, wow, we're home. God has been merciful. And now it's time to hear the book of the law. Somebody go get Ezra. Let's hear the book of the law. It's time to bury the idols that led us into exile. It's time for us to worship the right way, the right God, the right way. Let's hold nothing back this time. We held back for centuries. Let's not hold anything back this time. But instead, what happened after 516 ribbon cutting of the new temple, 60 years later after that happened, Ezra and Nehemiah show up. And Ezra, read Ezra and Nehemiah. They start walking around and saying, what in the world is happening in the city of Jerusalem? You cut the ribbon 60 years ago and everything's gone to pot. And they're raising, just read through the book of Nehemiah and it sounds eerily familiar to things we've been studying in Malachi. Nehemiah says, walks on the scene, Nehemiah chapter 13, he says, so what's up with the priests? They're all corrupt. Then Malachi starts walking around. He says, okay, so I'm paying attention to the fact that people are only seem to be attracted to marrying unbelievers. And now they're raising ungodly offspring who know how to worship the wrong God. What's going on here? And then, Mal and then Nehemiah in chapter five says, was anybody else concerned about the oppressive treatment of the poor in this town? And then Nehemiah notices in chapter 10 and chapter 13, he says, by the way, where are the Levites? Every time I go to the temple, I can't find a Levite. They're supposed to be paid to be here. And then somebody says, no, they've gone back to their farms. Why'd they have to go back to their farms? Because we stopped writing their paychecks to do their teaching and their leading in worship. And he says, well, why'd you stop paying them? You're not bringing the tithes? The tithes were to keep the worship system in front of the whole people of God, so that it made a statement that we value what we do when we gather for the worship of God. Nehemiah is so ticked off in chapter 13 that he says, quote, I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. That's called going Old Testament on people, right? I'd get fired. Not that, I'm, not that I want to do something like that, but I'd probably lose my job, I imagine, if I did something like what Nehemiah did, right? In other words, that was Nehemiah's way of saying, on what planet have you guys been living? This stuff is what landed us in Babylon. And some suppose that 10 or 15 years after Nehemiah leaves the scene, here comes Malachi writing. So Nehemiah just pulled people's hair 10 years ago, and what does Malachi say? He says, so let's talk about the priests. How come they're all corrupt? Disputation number two. Let's talk about everybody marrying unbelievers and raising ungodly offspring, disputation number three. What's the deal with the oppression of the poor? Disputation number four. And why are we withholding tithes and offerings and not paying the Levites, disputation number five? We've been this route before. Malachi's saying we've been this way before. It doesn't end well. Withholding, returning, returning. Verse nine. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. So often in scripture, repentance is tangible, not conceptual. It's not this kind of nebulous gas of repentance feelings. It's show me the money, <laughs> repentance. Repentance. 
That's what we see, right? God says, I'll know I've reclaimed your worship when the priests stop offering one-eyed Bessie as the burnt offerings. I'll know I've reclaimed your worship when you treat your marriage partner with honor. I'll know I've reclaimed your worship when the full tithe comes into the storehouse. So giving, this is in your notes, giving is one of five aspects of the proper worship of God, along with prayer, praise, covenant meal, and hearing the word. And if those sound familiar, it's because fundamentally it's the same five in the New Testament. The shape of it looks different to be sure. There's not burnt offerings and so forth. But fundamentally, you still got those five. Some things change from Old to New Testament, but the practice of sacrificial giving isn't one of them. And also, to add to that, the Old Testament is not the only place where repentance is manifested or demonstrated by financial generosity. Think about Zacchaeus. You might have learned the song when you were growing up. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I can never remember the next line of the song. But anyway, Jesus sees him. Jesus invites him to come down. We're going to have a meal today at your house. Goes to Zacchaeus' house. Rocks his, I mean, just Zacchaeus is totally transformed by this experience of the mercy and welcome of Jesus Christ. And he experiences the kindness of Jesus and that kindness led to repentance. And what shape did Zacchaeus' repentance take? Luke 19, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. And all the tons of people who had been cheated by Zacchaeus, it became suddenly Christmas because he had extorted a lot of people and he said, it's time to square up. I know Jesus now, it's time to square up. Think about categories of New Testament giving and we'll look at some scripture verses for this. So a few categories, regular and proportionate. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, so regular, first day of the week, it's Sunday, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So how well did you do? And that informs what you bring on the first day of the week. It's regular and it's proportionate. Second, it supports ministers. 1 Timothy 5, 18, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. Third, it provides for saints in need. Provides for saints in need. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. Right now, Paul writes, I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So, saints in Jerusalem had fallen on deeply hard times, been struck by poverty conditions, and so the churches in all the other places said, let's collect an offering. We're not gonna let our brothers and sisters starve. Just somebody come around and take what we've collected together and then take what they've collected. Achaia's collected some, Macedonia's collected some. Send it on to Jerusalem for our brothers and sisters. Next, it's prompted by love and cheerfully given prompted by love and cheerfully. It's not extracted from begrudging hearts. Each person, Paul writes, should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion since God loves a cheerful giver. And then finally, it funds gospel work among the nations. 
which I was just talking about a moment ago. But Paul writes about that in a couple of different places. That should be 1 Corinthians 9, 7, but here's also Romans 15, 23. Paul writes, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So he's coming through, he's gonna spend time fellowshipping with the Roman believers and then he says, help me get to the next place. Help the gospel travel further by your giving. I gave an update two weeks ago about Brook Hills giving in the year 2022. It was incredibly encouraging. Matter of fact, there was unsolicited applause in both services after we heard just this, the evidence of God's grace on our church in the area of giving. It was one of the strongest years of giving in the past 15 years of our church history. So I'm not preaching Malachi chapter three because we didn't hit budget. We crushed budget. It was an awesome awesome year. We're not doing Malachi 3, you know, kind of like, yeah, we didn't hit budget, so you know, where do we have in the Bible where we can get people giving a little bit more? Oh, Malachi 3, you know, this is not the tail wagging the dog. Malachi chapter 3, I'm preaching this, Malachi chapter 3, because it's the next passage in the book of Malachi, because it's God's word, and we flourish when we listen to God's word. It's the attitude of the Christian, the disciple of Jesus. Again, John Piper, I find these words so helpful He writes, Paul teaches that the missionary enterprise of the church is to be supported by the giving of the people of God. He makes this plain because when he writes to Rome, he asks that they would help support his mission to Spain. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? In other words, teaching, preaching, caring, and missions all cost money, and they're all to be paid for by the believers in the church. So what shape does discipleship take in the new covenant community as we look at Malachi chapter three? It means we gladly fund gospel work here and among the nations. This responsibility falls to us and we gladly step toward it, withholding, returning, and finally the blessing. The blessing. Verse 10. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land. And your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you blessed or fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. So really good Old Testament work has been done cataloging the language of blessing and cursing that we see going on here in Malachi. And one of the things that it reveals is that Malachi really knew his Bible. And Malachi especially knew and drew from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which is a deeply formative book in the Hebrew scriptures. And Malachi was steeped in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, those who have cataloged the blessing and cursing language that prevails all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, have cataloged 27 different kinds of curses that God says, don't go there or this will happen. 
Don't do that. Don't rebel against me. Or this other second kind of thing could happen. So 20 different kinds of divine curses that will fall on people if they persist in rebellion. And then they've cataloged 10 different kinds of restoration blessings where God essentially says, if you don't go there, but you come back toward me, here's how I'm going to make it rain. Watch me work renewal in your midst. Just turn to me. So these promises of restoration blessing, 10 different categories and 27 different categories. The interesting thing as you move through the book of Malachi is the curses fade. They're strong and prominent in the first half of the book and they begin to fade and the promises of grace take center stage as you read through. I'll just give you an example of that. I counted it up this morning. In the first three disputations, curses outnumber blessings nine to two. So God is getting up in the business, beginning of Malachi. In the last three disputations, so disputation four, five, and six, blessings outnumber curses 10 to four. So you can see it's sort of carrot and a stick, right? But, but he's, in, he's in, he's finishing the swing with promises of grace. And he's, he's changing the ratios of those things. Here's the point for us. God pursues us to align our purposes with his and give us deep running joy. Give us deep running joy. Look at verse six because it's such a striking statement. Verse six, God says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. That's God basically saying, let me just tell you up front, I'm not here to destroy you. The only reason that I haven't already destroyed you isn't because of anything in you, it's because I'm faithful to my promises of grace to you. Mess of a people though you are, I am committed to my promises. And that's the only reason you're still breathing. The grace of God. Judgment, Martin Luther would say centuries ago, judgment is God's strange work. Judgment is what God does with his left hand. Salvation is what God does with his right hand, and God is decidedly right-handed. He loves to save. That's his main operation. He loves to be compassionate. He delights to bring people near to him. That's why he sent Jesus, right? Gets back to the central story of the whole Bible. Jesus Christ, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Jesus might be saved. Jesus was sent for our salvation. What's that mean for people here in this room this morning? It means if you need to be forgiven, the cross is the place for that to happen. Trust in Jesus, his blood shed for us on the cross. If you need a new start, the empty tomb of Jesus is where that new start begins. It enables you to turn a clean page in your life because he rose from the dead. You can have newness of life, as Emmy reminded us here this morning. If you've been crushed by shame, Jesus speaks a better word so that you as a believer can stand tall in the presence of a God who delights in you and you can come before his presence with confidence as Hebrews chapter 10 says. There's there's so much grace in this passage. I love verse seven where God says, right at the outset, return to me and I will return to you. What's he saying? My yes is on the table. We in? Fall in my direction. Grace will catch you. Just come to me. If you strayed from God, God is saying in verse seven, he's pulling you close and saying, just just return to me. Everything's gonna be fine. Return to me. His yes is on the table. His provision is on the table. Verse 10, bring the full tenth. Look at the language. Test me in this way. See if I won't. 
(laughs) And what's the see if I won't? See if I won't open heaven's floodgates over your life and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Test me. I'm asking you to test me. (laughs) I love that. You know, there's a right and a wrong way to test the Lord. When we demand that God prove himself and we place ourselves in a position of judgment over God, that, that is not the way of flourishing. But on the other hand, when God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at my track record and then I want you to step out trusting me in obedience and watch me show up. That leads good places, right? That becomes a gateway to blessing. That's why Malachi is finishing this disputation with promises of blessing and reward. Faith prompted obedience to God brings a blessing in its wake. That's, that, that itself is not prosperity gospel, right? So don't wince or, you know, get a tick or something when I say that. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God could just say, hey, you got two options, seek me or die. Would anybody blame him? No, that features justice, okay, you know. But he says, seek me and be rewarded. There's blessing, right? That's why John Piper's book, Desiring God, rocks so many people's world. Christian hedonism, the idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and that Christianity doesn't have to be joyless duty, drudgery, dragging yourself through life with empty ritualism. It's not even rigorous sacrifice that's most prominent in the Christian life. Why do you say that? Because what we gain by following Jesus is way better than anything we might lose. You might say, what about the cost of following Jesus? Isn't there a cost associated with, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's costly to follow Jesus. The only thing that's more costly than following Jesus is not following Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He says, the enemy's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Is that what you want? I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. That's the promise of Jesus. Pick any area of obedience that you find in God's word. Step toward that area and watch blessing flow. Enter into the waters of baptism, for example, as Emmy did this morning and then Kate did in the earlier service. Enter into the waters of baptism in obedience to Jesus and I dare you to get out of the water without feeling the blessing. Feeling the smile of God, his pleasure in that obedience, feeling a fresh sense of joy in Christ that you would not have sensed otherwise. Step out in giving tithes and offerings. We don't learn to trust God by reading books about trusting God. We learn to trust God by letting go of that which can so easily become our trust. Let me say that again. We learn to trust God by letting go of that which can so easily become our trust trust and what is that in our culture if it's not money if you don't know where to begin with your giving you want to step towards the things that we're seeing here in God's word instead of just making up a random number let's go with 10 10 aspire move toward in the direction of 10 see how God proves himself faithful man I could testify all day in my own life, my family's life, my mom, my dad, we, we have seen this to be true. I believe this. God blesses his people in the sight of the nations so that more and my, more might know his abundant 
goodness. I love how the restoration blessings conclude in verse 12. He's saying that the blessing of God is gonna land on you with such force that the nations are gonna be compelled to say, you are a fortunate people. You are a blessed people. Malachi says, you will be a delightful land. Old Testament commentator Thomas McComiskey writes these words, for the nations of the world to call Israel blessed is for them to acknowledge that God has made Israel specially favored among them and to admit implicitly that they wish they could be as well off as Israel. It's not just a polite diplomatic statement that the nations are here portrayed as saying. It is an admission that Israel has become the nation to be envied. But when God reclaims us for himself, the church becomes the envy of the world. If they only had eyes to see what we're getting in here, in the covenant family, the care that's expressed in generosity in the family of God, the joy that's expressed around the table of feasting among the community of faith. It's like in the book of Acts. We're gonna go back to the book of Acts once we're done with Malachi, but we've already been there for several chapters. And you can see this. It's like, it's like there's this glass pane and the world is pulled up with their hands against the glass, looking inside and saying, what a strange people they are. Look how joyful they are. Look how they care for their poor. Look how equal the ground is at the foot of the cross. Rich and poor worship together. We never see this in the empire. What's going on in there? They're just compelled. It's like a magnet. God says, test me in this. God says, return to me through giving. Watch what happens. Watch heaven open up over your life. Return to me through the practice of giving and watch me make it rain. When God says, test me in this, what should we be hearing him say to us this morning? We should be hearing God say to you individually and to us as a church, I dare you to trust me this much. Watch how capable I am of being a good provider.